Um, we're holding in Tanya, and we're holding by Perik Ches, chapter 8. Um, chapter 8, Perik Ches, is really the end of a three Perik section in Tanya. Um, I think we've discussed in the past that even though on the one end Tanya is written as one book that's 53 chapters long, yet there's a number of sub-topics that take up a couple of chapters, two or three or four Perukim. And Perichas that we're going to go through tonight is really a continuation and the ending of something that began in Perik Vav. Chapter Vav, Zayin, and Ches, 6, 7, and 8, really go together. And they are the discussion of the, um, the Nefesh Abahamis of a person, the animal soul of a person, but more so than the soul itself, but the way that the soul interacts and gets involved in the world and the worldly. See, going back a little bit, first we, we were introduced to the Nefesh of the case, the godly soul. And we discussed for a few prakim in Perik Beis, Gimel, Dalit, and Hay, the, the Nefesh of the case, the godly soul, and its expressions. Its expressions in its machshava, its dibur, its maisa, thought, speech, and deed, and the mitzvahs that it does, and that's how it connects to a higher level, connects to Hashem. Because even though it's a godly soul, but by doing mitzvahs and learning Torah, it connects to Hashem on a much greater level. We talk about Torah and mitzvahs and so on. In, in Perik Vav, he turns to the animal soul. And the animal soul, which is, which is Klipa, which is the, the other side, Sitra Achara, um, and its involvement in this world is, its invol- is the person's involvement in that which is unholy. And that's what we've been discussing. And he talked about the fact in chapter 6, he already said the basic idea, the basic rule, that in this world everything is either holy or not holy. There's, that's only two options. There's either Kedusha or Klipa. There's holiness or that which is called the shell or the other side. Everything. Anything that we do that's not directly connected with Hashem or for the sake of Hashem or for the sake of serving Hashem is Klipa, is unholy. Yet, in unholiness, he said there's two general levels within unholiness itself. There is that which we call, there is that which is called um, klipas noiga, and that's the level of unholiness that can go either way. It can be brought up to Kedusha, or it can be pushed down further into klipa. That's, the, that's what we call the, the, that which is mutter, that which is permissible. He talked about the fact that the word per, in Hebrew for permissible is mutter, which really means to be untied. And everything that is permissible is untied in a sense, that it's not tied down to Klippa. It can be brought up to Kedusha if used for proper reasons, or it can be pushed down further into Klippa if used for unholy reasons, improper reasons. But even when that which is permissible is pushed down, it's still untied. It can still easily be brought back up. And that's what we talked about last week a lot. That when a person, for example, eats not L'Shem Shemayim, a person just eats for it because they're just for gluttony, because of the good taste and for, for gluttonous reasons. But it's kosher. So being that they ate and partook in, in the physical, not for a holy reason, not for a godly reason, it was pushed down into klipa, into unholiness. But it's still untied because it's kosher and therefore can easily be brought back up into Kedusha. And that's the basic um, category of klipas noga, that which remains untied. It's unholy until it's brought into Kedusha. When used negatively, it's pushed further into Klippa, but it always remains untied and can always be brought back up into Kedusha. 
All of that is klipas noga, which is the higher or better level of klipa of unholiness. Then there is the shalish klipas atmeis, literally the three impure klipas. That's the level of klipa that's forbidden, that's tied down. That when, when a person does an avera, chas v'shalom, person does an avera, so that, that energy is tied down in the unholy and cannot be easily brought into Kedusha at all. A person can do tshuva, a person won't be punished, but to bring the energies of an Avera into Kedusha, that's something that's very, very difficult. We talked about last week a concept of a tremendously high level of tshuva, tshuva me'ahava rabba, that has the ability to transform it. That's a very unusual level of tshuva. Otherwise, really, waits for the coming of Mashiach. Only when Mashiach will come, the Pasuk says, then there won't be any more impurity in the world, and then even the most negative klipas will be brought into Kedusha. That really uh, sort of uh, summarizes what we learned so far. And that brings us to the beginning of this parak, parak Ches, where he continues on these concepts of the different levels of klipa, the, that which is tied down and that which is not tied down. And again, he, we go through that in, this, uh, in the chapter that we're going to look at now. So he starts off by saying that there's another reason why the negative klipas, the forbidden klipas, are called tied down. Another effect of the fact that they're tied down. And he says... What if someone accidentally, accidentally does an Avera, or accidentally eats something that's forbidden, by mistake? They didn't mean to. They didn't, they didn't even know it was unkosher. person eats this unkosher food. And not only that, after they eat it, they're energized because it gives energy to the body, and with that energy, they learn Torah, and they do mitzvahs, and they do gemilas chasadim, they do wonderful things, all with the energy of that um, food that was eaten that's unkosher. And it was eaten... Bishagig, unwittingly, the person didn't know. Says, Al-Tarebbe says, still, even if it was Bishagig, even if it was accidental, the energy is tied down. If it's tied down, this cannot be brought into Kedusha, even though one used that energy for positive reasons. And he says, and it doesn't matter if it's a Torah um, prohibition, or it's a rabbinic prohibition, if it's something that our Shulchan Aruch, if the Torah Shabbat tells us that this is usr, that this is tied down, it becomes tied down and the person's kavana really makes no difference. Again, the person didn't know there was anything wrong with it and the person had the best intentions and the person used it for positive things. Kavana doesn't make something kosher. It's, it's very similar to if someone physically accidentally eats something that's poisonous. It's not their fault. It's not their fault. They didn't know. They thought they were having something that was, that was perfectly healthy. But if someone accidentally eats something is poisonous, it's still poison. It's poison nonetheless and can have a, a terrible effect on a person physically. And the same is with these things that are spiritually poison, which means that spiritually they come from the klipa that's tied down. So although the person's kavana was fine and the person didn't mean to do an avera, and therefore Hashem is not going to punish them. They, they didn't mean to do anything wrong. But nevertheless, that negativity has become part of them and negatively can affect the person. You know, there are stories of people who came to the Rabbeim, the Rebbe, or previous Rabbeim, and they were suffering with the various uh, spiritual, um, they weren't able to uh, be, to inspire themselves spiritually, or they had different uh, questions in their amuna, whatever it was, and the Rabbeim said to be very careful of what they eat. Perhaps by mistake, they're eating something that's not kosher. They're not kosher, or even rabbinically something that's forbidden. Because these things have a negative effect on us, regardless of what our kavana is. So that's, he says, another idea 
why it's called Isr, why it's tied down, that which is forbidden, because no matter what our intention is and how we do it, it's something that's tied down in Klippa, and therefore when we make that part of us, it brings us down, it pulls us down into that realm, that energy of Klippa as well. And he says that this is why, and I think something we, we touched on last week as well, why the naturally a Yid, even though we have that Nefesh Abahamas, that animal soul, but our animal soul comes from Klippa Snoga. It's from that middle Klippa that, can, that, is, that is not tied down. That's why everything about our animal soul can be transformed and can be elevated into Kedusha. And that's why he says, the naturally a Yid should never desire something that's forbidden. The concept to desire something that's us or something that's forbidden really has no room in the, even in the animal soul of a Yid because the animal soul of a Yid comes from Klippa Snoga. How then is it that many times a yid might be desirous of something that's forbidden. That's only because a person desired things that are permissible and did it not l'shem shemayim. So therefore he pushed them further down into klipa. That introduced the person to that lower level of klipa. In other words, if we would never do anything wrong, we would never desire that which is us or that which is forbidden. But because it started out with what we call taivas heter, which is doing things that are permissible but not l'shem shemayim. So if we did things that are permissible, not L'Shem Shemayim, again and again, so we brought that energy down within ourselves from a basic state of Klippas Noiga, pushing it down to Gilmu Klippas Atmeis, and therefore that brings a person to that ability of desiring that which is forbidden and that which is tied down as well. So that's, that was, that's the opener of the parrot about the, the Isser, the tied down forbidden things. He bounces back. What about that which is not forbidden? Right? Things that are permissible, and so far we're talking about foods, soon we'll graduate to other areas. But things that are, that are permissible, so that's totally different. They're permissible, so they're not tied down. So even if a person is going to partake in something, and he's going to partake in it, not l'shem shemayim, a person is going to eat or drink or have a good time, and not for the sake of heaven. So even though that was pushed downward, further down into Klippa because the person's intention weren't positive. But nevertheless, through an easy, through basic tshuva, the person is able to elevate it and bring it back into Kedusha. However, here he says something that he hasn't said before. And uh, a little bit of a warning, this Peirik is a little bit harsher. It's, it's more of a harsh type of Peirik. It's the final Peirik discussing the Klippa and the person and the world around us. So you have to bear with us for a little bit. He says, when a person partakes in food, and again, soon we'll talk about other areas, but first we're talking about food. Food or drink, and it's not L'shem Shemayim at all. Not for the sake of a mitzvah, not for the sake of Shabbos, or Yom Tev, or being energized to do a mitzvah, just for the sake of the good taste. That's all the person is thinking of. So, the energy is pushed, is brought downward. But then, person does tshuva, brings it back up. But there was a period of time, before the person did tshuva, that, that, that the energy of the person's body was, with that food that the person had pushed down into klipa, that leaves a negative trace on the person's neshama. In other words, even though the person ate something that was permissible, not l'shem shamayim, then the person did shuva, so the energy goes brought back into Kedusha. But there was a period of time when that energy wasn't in Kedusha, and it was part of the person. And this is something very powerful about food. Food that we eat becomes part of who we are, right? There's, a, I think, a quote that you are what you eat. And Hasidus holds very much of that quote of you are what you eat, that the things that we eat affect us. And therefore, if we ate something and it wasn't in any way connected 
with L'shem Shemayim. So for that period of time, for that hour or for that day, our bodies and our soul, therefore, was energized by something that was in the realm of Klippa. And this, therefore, requires later, after a person passes away, that the soul be cleansed because of those uh, those stains, if you will, those those um, those marks that are left over from that negative energy that was in the person, even if it was only there for a certain period of time. He talks about one of the uh, Kabbalistic um, types of um, of cleansing of the soul is called chibot hakever. Chibot hakever literally means chibot is to bang, and in the kever, when a person is in the kever, when a person is in the grave, and what that means is that we know that a neshama is sent into this world pure and holy, connected to Hashem, totally one with Hashem. And ultimately, in order to reconnect to Hashem, the neshama has to also be purified. And it's purified from the various different kinds of negative behaviors or negative effects or negative stains, if you will, that we create in our neshama. Therefore, when a person, he says, partakes in this world, and it wasn't L'Shem Shemaim at all, there was no intention L'Shem Shemaim, and therefore that at that moment when the person received their chayis, their energy from that, it was klipa chayis. So that is going to have to be removed from the person through through chibotakev. Now, as I said, this is uh, one of the areas where we see that even though there's all different types of, um, of prohibitions in the Torah, there's something specifically stringent about food issues. Because more than any other avera that one might do, or anything negative that one might do, something that becomes what we call damu basar kibsari, because part of our flesh, part of our blood, part of our chayis, affects us in a very deep way. Can I ask a question? You may. Um, this is so interesting because it's almost like saying that um, part of our avoda in this world is to purify the way we eat. Almost like that you have to have kavana while you're eating, the way you have kavana while you're davening. Otherwise, you're going to have to come to purify after after you die. And the, the way our religion is set up is there's a lot of eating. <laughs> okay, very, very well said and very well taken. And what you're saying is true. Um, I mean, almost true. I wouldn't say it's the same as davening because I don't know that like every bite a person has to have a special kavana on this bite. We're talking about the general intention of what I'm trying to do. So, and, and even here, I want to split it up. You said in our religion there's a lot of eating, which is very true, but that eating is actually, most of it is eating of mitzvah. You know, when a person eats on Shabbos Kodesh and has a Shabbos meal and sets it up nicely and has beautiful foods and the same thing is Malava Malka or on Yom Tev, then the actual eating becomes a mitzvah, mamash a mitzvah. But even when it's not Shabbos and Yom Tev and the eating is not mamash a mitzvah, but a person eats in order to be strong, in order to give themselves energy, in order to do what they have to do. Now, some will say, okay, then you should just eat food that have no taste. Not so. Because you eat good food, you're in a better frame of mind, you're more besimcha, you're able to go out and, and be good to people, you're able to be uh, better to people, you're better to daven better, learn better, do mitzvahs better. All of that create a happy atmosphere in the home, create a happy atmosphere in the family. All of that, in a, with a positive kavana, turns that food into tremendously a, a kedusha, Avodas Hashem. It's part of Avodas Hashem. So you're right that we do a lot of eating, sometimes too much. Um, at the same time, and eating is very central. It's very central in our Avodas, something very central to every person in general in life. And doing it properly can turn all of that into a very, very holy activity. Um, 
In fact, the, the, the Mizbeach, the, the Karbanes, are called Lechem for Hashem, Hashem's food. The concept of food that Hashem created that we eat, and that's what keeps us alive, and gives us energy, is not a small thing. There's a, uh, a famous story about the, um, who was it? I'm blanking out over here. It was the Tzemach Tzedek's wife, I believe. I believe it was the Tzemach Tzedek. The Tzemach Tzedek was the third Rebbe of Lubavitch, the granddaughter of the, of the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, who we're learning. And she was, uh, she was ill, and the doctor told her she has to eat right away in the morning. But she wanted to daven first. She was very front, so she would wake up super early to daven and then to eat. And the Rebbe told her, I think, I think it was the Tzemach Sadiq, he said, he said, it's better to eat first in order, your eating should be for the sake of davening better. He said, it's better to eat for davening than to daven in order to eat. He says, I want you to eat in the morning and eat with the kavana, and you should be able to daven with more kavana. And then the eating is part of your Avedis Hashem. So, I'm not arguing with anything you're saying. Our eating is a big part of our life. And done properly, it can become a tremendous Avedis Hashem. At the same time, when it's done without any Kedusha Tika thoughts, that's what we're learning over here, then then, at least momentarily, that brings that down into Klippa until a person does Shuva. And that does leave um, marks and stains that have to be rectified after a person passes away. Um, I, I started saying... That, um, that there's something unique about eating, that it becomes part of us more than anything else that we do. Um, I remember hearing that there was in the time of uh, in, you know, in, um, in Stalinist Russia, and you had a very you had a tremendous amount of pressure on, the, on, on eating, and there were a lot of things that people had to do at the pain of death. And one of the things is a lot of them had to go to schools, and those schools were... Um, were places that you would make the kids be Mechal Shabbos, uh, many of these places. And also many of the places, um, they'd make the kids eat treif. And sometimes you had to make a decision. It's a tough decision to make. But the kid had to go to school, but either it would be in a situation where they would eat, have to eat treif, or they would have to be Mechal Shabbos. You know, how do you make such a decision? Which Avera do you choose? And again, this is all Pikuach Nefesh. Their lives are in danger. But and, and I don't know this from official sources, but I've heard that the great Rabbanim at the time said, if you need to do one to save the, 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 uh, the life of the child, better they should be Mechal Shabbos than Tetraif. Because the eating Traif has that power of becoming part of you. You're bringing it into you, becomes part of, you know, Dama, Basar, Kipsari. It has a very negative uh, effect on a person. So at Baruch Hashem, we don't, we don't typically have to make such decisions. But the point is that eating is very important and it, and it affects us very deeply. And that's why we're, we're trying to be a makbid to make sure to eat something only that's 100% kosher. Midiraisa, um, midirabonam. Not to have that negative effect on who we are. Okay, let's move on. However, he says, lest we get all nervous and that, that eating is so, so dangerous and scary, he brings a very beautiful thing from Rabbeinu HaKadosh. Who is, Rab, who is called in Gemara Rabbeinu HaKadosh or plain Rebbe? So that is Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. Right? Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi was um, one of the greatest sages of the Mishnah, and he's the one who compiled the entire Mishnah. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi was the leader of Klal Yisrael in his time, and he is the one who took the um, initiative to really start writing Torah. Right? Torah Shabbat, the oral tradition that for, that for over a thousand years remained, was, was transmitted orally, it was Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi who writes the first book of the oral tradition called the Mishnah. So that's Again, he's known as Rebbe, or Rabbi Yudah Hanasi, Rabbeinu HaKadosh. We're talking about the same person. 
This Rabbi Huda Anasi was fabulously wealthy. It says he was one of the wealthiest people in the world at the time. In fact, he lived some, I don't know, 50, 60 years after the destruction of the Second Beis Amikdash. And this was under Roman rule. Now, the Romans in general were terrible to the Jewish people. And they had just destroyed the Beis Amikdash. And they had just killed how many untold amounts of Jewish people and 10 martyrs and so on. But it was Rabbi Yehuda Anasi who was the first one who was able to create a connection between him and the Roman emperor of the time, Antoninus. And the Gemara has fascinating stories about the relationship of Rabbi Yehuda and Antoninus. Here, Rabbi Yehuda Anasi is the prince of the Jewish people, the greatest tzaddik of the Jewish people, and Antoninus is the Roman emperor. They would learn together. Again, fascinating stories. We're not going to learn, learn the history of these two. Suffice it to say that the Gemara says that when, it's, when, when uh, Rivka, when Rivka, as we know, the Chumash says, he, she had her, uh, these uh, pains in, during um, when she was pregnant. And she felt fighting going on within her, right, in her belly. And she goes to the Tzaddik, to Shem and Aver, and they tell her, Shnei goyim bevitnech, there's two nations that are within you in your womb. So the Gemara says, they were really telling her that there's two great, um, two great people that are coming forth from you. And they are Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi and Antoninus. Antoninus is the Roman emperor, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. They're going to come from your womb because Yaakov's descendant is going to be, of course, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. And Esau's descendant is going to be Antoninus. So this was already prophesied to Rivka about these two great uh, wealthy and 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 uh, important, prominent individuals, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi and Antoninus. The Gemara says there that these two people were so wealthy. In the olden times, how did they uh, say wealth? You know, today every every generation has its uh, symbol of wealth. But here, the Gemara says in that time, what was the symbol of wealth? That in any season of the year, they had every type of food on their table. Right today, that's very easy. You go into the shopping store, any any. Uh, in a supermarket, and you can get it any time of the year, any type of fruit, any type of vegetable. In the olden days, you only had what was, you know, if you're a regular person, you only had what was in the season now. But they were so wealthy, they had contacts in the entire world that they always had, it says, onions and radishes and all the different types of food. Rabbi Yudha Anasi and Antoninus, both their tables were always lavish with every type of food. So Rabbi Yudha Anasi was tremendously wealthy. But, says the Gemara in Mesech Tuxuvus, it says, Bishas Ptirase Shal Rabbi. As Rabbi Yehuda Nasi was passing away, it says he picked up his ten fingers heavenward and he said, Hashem, It's perfectly clear and revealed before you. He says that with every ounce of my ten fingers and every ounce of me, I, was, I toiled in your Torah. I didn't derive benefit and pleasures from this world even as much as the pinky of my hand. Rabbi Huda Anasi says before passing away, and therefore he finishes, he says, may be your will, that I should rest in peace. That was the last words of Rabbi Huda Anasi. A heavenly voice came out and said, come in peace and rest on your bed. And Rabbi Huda Anasi passes away. So here we have this fabulously wealthy person that partook of all these foods, right? It says that his, his table was, was laden with the fanciest and best foods, just like the table of Antoninus, the emperor. And nevertheless, he was able to testify about himself on his deathbed that he never, had, no, he never took pleasure 
in earthly and physical mundane pleasures for their sake, even as much as his little finger, meaning that he did eat and he had good meals and big meals, but it was all Hashem Shemayim. Everything was done for the, for, for, the, uh, for the glory of Hashem and he had big tables and he had many guests and he had a family and he had so on and so forth and everything was done in the highest, most beautiful fashion, but it was all a mitzvah, it was all Hashem Shemayim. And the same is with us, that the point of this chapter is not to say stop eating or that uh, or eating is a bad thing or who knows what happens and as one of you pointed out correctly, you know, we do a lot of that. At the same time, the Shaila is, what's the kavana of a yid? How does one do it? For what reason does one do it? And that's all the difference in the world. So a person that could be Yudah Nasi, his, his every, it was, everything was so much Lashem Shemayim that there was no stain. There was nothing negative. Even for a moment, there was no negative energy. It was all oila lekedusha ka'oila ke'korban. It all became like a carbon for Hashem. The food that he ate because it was taka, because it was Lashem Shemayim. And that's, the Alter Rebbe brings that here. It's interesting, the Rebbe notes, the Alter Rebbe calls him here Rabbeinu HaKadosh. Rabbeinu means he's our Rebbe. It's something that's applicable to us as well. It's not just something, oh, he was such a great tzaddik, so he was able to do it, but for us, we're not shy to it. He says, no, he's Rabbeinu, he's our Rebbe. He's Taka Kadosh. He's very holy. And yet that becomes a, a lesson for us as well that this world that Hashem gave, gave us and all the beautiful things that He gives us and the tasty things that He gives us is meant to partake of them. L'shem Shemaim, using them properly in the right way. And that way, Take doesn't make any stain, it doesn't require any type of cleansing afterward. Okay, he moves on to the period and says, by the way, this is not just about food, right? Uh, food is a big deal, but it's not all about food. He says, this concept of involvement in things that are um, permitted, L'shem Shemaim, or not L'shem Shemaim, and things that are forbidden, this applies to all different types of activities, and all of them, if we do create stains on our neshama, are going to need some type of cleansing in order for our neshama to be fully purified, to come back to Hashem and be able to, to fully cleave with Hashem after our, after our lifetime as well. And he goes through a number of such examples and some basic, ide basic ideas. I want to mention them in short. He says, a person who talks devarim betelim. What are devarim betelim? Devarim betelim is just frivolous talk. We're not talking about forbidden talk. Right? We're not talking about lush and horror. We're not talking about hurting someone's feelings. We're not talking about slanderous talk, but just frivolous varbatalum that has this has no value. No value and no meaning. Something that all of us know, something that, that people do. We just, you know, shoot the breeze, just talk about whatever is on our minds for whatever reason. So he says, if a person talks dvarim betalum beheter, that means it's permissible dvarim betalum, it's not forbidden in any way. Now, for a man, this becomes a little more complicated. Because for a man, Dvar Mbetelim right away runs into Bittal Torah. Because a man has this mitzvah of learning Torah whenever one can. But let's say this man can't learn Torah now. Let's say this is a person who's very ignorant, doesn't have the ability to learn Torah. So it's, it's Dvar Mbetelim Beheter. It's permissible Dvar Mbetelim. Says the Zayar. Now, the Alter Rebbe here in Tanya quotes from the Zayar. He says, this is going to leave a negative stain on the Neshama. Even though there was no forbid nothing forbidden, but it wasn't L'shem Shemayim. It wasn't in any way connected with Hashem, or with serving Hashem, or with doing a mitzvah, or preparing for a mitzvah, or helping in a mitzvah, and therefore it's going to leave a stain on the neshama, and therefore it's going to require some type of cleansing. And it's interesting, he says exactly what type of cleansing, and it's a cleansing that the Kabbalah talks about, it's called Kaf HaKela. 
Akafakela, literally that means being uh, being thrown through by the slingshot. Literally, that's Akafakela is a slingshot. And the way, it, the, in the imagery of certain Svarim of Musar, is that the Nishama is thrown from one end of the world to the other end of the world, back and forth, and that's a way of cleaning it out, just like you clean something by throwing it back and forth. Now that's a, it's a physical imagery which doesn't apply in, in, its, in its actual way because the neshama is not physical and you don't throw it. It's not, it's not a stone. It's not something made up of matter. But that imagery reflects a certain um, lack of peace of the neshama where it's pulled back and forth from the different worlds in order to cleanse it from that type of an avoid. It's interesting, the, guy, the idea of that slingshot is alluded to in Tanakh. In Tanakh. In, if you, you, those, those of you who are with us in the last couple of weeks, so we talked about the concept that through mitzvahs one becomes bound up in the eternal bond of Hashem. We talked about on the bottom of a gravestone it says, mm-hmm. right? Bound up with Hashem. That same pasuk where it says, it's a pasuk in Shmuel, the Avigail, who's a Sadekis, is talking to Dovin Amelech, and she says that the soul of my master will be bound up in the bound of Hashem. The soul of your enemies should be sent in that slingshot. So it's Avigail in Tanakh who mentions this concept of bound up with Hashem or having to go in the slingshot. The idea being it's a form of cleansing for the Nisham. So that's again someone who's involved in frivolous talk, not Lashem Shemayim, though there was no Averada. He goes on further in the parak, he says, but then there is forbidden talk. There's Averis. If a person talks Lashonara, if a person talks slander about another person, person talks Litsanis, Litsanis is jokingness and something that's the opposite of Kedu, in, in a way that's very opposite of, of, uh, of refine, refinement, something neg- negative type of talk. Since for that, Kafakela is not enough, there, the Nishama needs to go through greater cleansing. And there's different forms of Gehenna, different forms of purgatory for that. He talks about for a man who's able to learn Torah and instead he just involved in frivolousness. So that's Bittal Torah. He says this needs the special um, cleansing that Bittal Torah needs because of the very deep stain it makes on the Nisham. He says laziness. When a person doesn't uh, perform a mitzvah that they could because of laziness so that there's a different type of Gehenim called Gehenim Shel Sheleg, a Gehenim of snow. And we always have to remember we're not talking about physical snow. We're not talking about physical fire. We're not talking about physical slingshots. We're talking about souls. But this is imagery that's used to understand these concepts. The point is, and a general point to always remember whenever we talk about punishments in Torah, Hashem is not bad and Hashem is not angry and Hashem is not mean. Punishments are cleansings. That's what they are. Notice we were given a pure and pristine neshama. We were sent into this world with this pure neshama of light and of holiness in order to bring light to the world, to bring tikkun to the world. And at the same time, sometimes on the way here and there, we weren't careful and we got some stains in our neshama. When you get stains, it has to go into the washing machine. And there's different forms of washing machines depending on the stain, different forms of, and that's the different types of Gehenims or things. And by the way, a lot of this can be rectified in this world through tshuva. Right? Not everything must one way there. Shuva helps to rectify and cleanse a lot of this from our neshama. But these are things that if, if we're involved in these different types, again, forbidden or not, or, or not uh, I'm sorry, permissible, not l'shem shemayim, or forbidden in different types of prohibitions, each one has these different forms of being cleansed. He goes on and says, He, he, he goes on to say that what about involvement in 
What about involved in what he calls Chachmas Umas Ha'elam? Chachmas Umas Ha'elam is secular sciences, secular fields of knowledge and secular sciences. So he talks about that and he goes to actually talks about it a little. Um, he spends a couple of lines on it in this chapter. He says a person involved in secular sciences, not L'Shem Shemayim, same idea. Same idea. It could be Bittel Torah. Or it could just be something, a usage of this world, it's not L'Shem Shemayim. If it's not L'Shem Shemayim, it's Sitra across the other side. And then he goes on and says that in a way, involved in secular sciences and studies, not L'Shem Shemayim, is in a way worse than involvement in frivolous talk, not L'Shem Shemayim. Just simple frivolous talk and wasting time. Why? Because, he says, when we're using our mind, we're defiling a much deeper and more pristine part of who we are. When a person is just sitting around and wasting their time, they're not bringing, to, they're not bringing impurity into their more refined faculties, their mind and their heart. They're just wasting time. But when a person actually gets involved in studying things that are not, not connected to Hashem and studying things that are, and it's not in the way of the same Shemayim, so then not only did they bring Tuma into the lower, lesser parts of their persona, persona, personality, they brought it into their minds, they brought it into the deeper and most refined and highest parts of who we are. They brought the Tuma there that's even worse, says the altar. Unless, of course, if, one, if it's Lashem Shemayim, and here he talks about the concept, if a person gets involved in secular studies, whatever it is, the, the sciences, all different types of sciences, he says there's so many ways that that could be L'Shem Shemayim. For example, first, first and foremost, a person does it for a job. Right? A person has to have a job because the person has to make money in order to support themselves, support their family. Terah um, mitzvahs, chinuch, all the things we need, we need a job for. So in order to know the job, a person has to study. So whatever job they're going to take, so they have to study that job in order to know it. So that's a one very practical way where one is studying whatever they're studying, whatever science they're studying, but they're studying it in order that they should be able to support themselves and their families. L'shem Shemayim. That's definitely L'shem Shemayim. Or one's learning to be a doctor in order to save people, in order to help people. It's a mitzvah in the Torah, virape, yirape, that a doctor should heal. There's a mitzvah to listen to a doctor, there's a mitzvah to have a doctor. One is, one is studying in order to help people that's using it for L'shem Shemayim, for a mitzvah. The Altarah says even more so. Some of the greatest tzaddikim were tremendous, tremendously knowledgeable in the sciences of the world. Who, who, are, the, who are the most famous examples and the ones the Altarah mentions in this chapter? is the Rambam. Rambam Maimonides, the ultimate great philosopher and doctor is the Rambam, or the Ramban Nachmanides, who lived a little later after the Rambam, they didn't just learn the sciences because they needed a job. In fact, historically, historically, initially, the Rambam learned the sciences, learned not for a job. He didn't need a job. He was supported by his brother. And then later, his brother passed away, and that's when the Rambam went into actual practicing medicine, as we know the history of the Rambam. But the Rambam studied all the sciences of the world. Why? Because the Rambam was of that level that he was able to use every one of those pieces of knowledge in his Avedis Hashem. It helped him appreciate Hashem's greatness more. It helped him appreciate Hashem more. But for that, you have to be a Rambam or a Ramban. This is not for everyone. To be able to just devote themselves to, and of course, the Rambam knew the entire Torah, but he devoted himself also to all the sciences of the world because all of that brought him closer to Hashem. Every iota of his knowledge was used in bringing him closer to Hashem and seeing the beauty and the greatness of Hashem in every part of creation. So the Altarebbe says, someone who learns like the Rambam and the Ramban, then it's all part of Avedis Hashem. In other words, just like we said earlier about food, 
this, this, there's this common point that runs through this entire parik, which is all of these things in the world that are permissible, that if used not l'shem shemayim, drag us down and bring us and make those stains, and therefore need the, those types of cleansing, but used l'shem shemayim. To the contrary, they become part and parcel of avodas Hashem, just like an actual mitzvah and Torah. They too are bringing up these things that we're involved in into kedusha, into the realm of kedusha l'shem shemayim. It's interesting that um, the Zayar says, he doesn't quote that here in the Tanya, the Zayar says that before Mashiach comes, in the last, it says last few hundred, it says in the uh, 600th year, in the 600th year of the 6th millennium, which was about 300 years ago, right? Um, he says the, um, the wellsprings of wisdom will open up in this world. The Zayar was written almost 2,000 years ago. And the Zayar said that in the last two, three hundred years now, it was, very, it was prophesizing something that would happen fourteen hundred years after the Zayar was written. The wellsprings of wisdom will open up, both in Torah as well as in the sciences. That in the, in the era before the coming of Mashiach, Torah wisdom will explode more than ever before. More and more revelation of Torah more than ever before. And the sciences will explode as well. There will be more and more knowledge of the sciences more than ever before. And desire, and as it's, as it's explained, that they go together. Because ultimately, learned properly, understood properly, all of the sciences are meant for us to be able to see Hashem in every aspect of this world even more and even greater, and understand the profundity of creation and the greatness of creation, and see Hashem more through it. Of course, not everyone learns it that way. And of course, one can learn it and take it negatively. But the ultimate kavanah, the ultimate purpose of all sciences is to lead to the ultimate chachma of Hashem, the wisdom of Hashem. And therefore, our involvement and pursuits in these areas of chachma, even if it's not directly chachma, the chachma of Torah, if it's used l'shem shamayim, that becomes kedusha as well. And that's really how he finishes this chapter. Um, I'm missing a page. That's how he finishes this perik perik ches, Finishing this, again, the three uh, part that we learned over the last three shiurim, of uh, discussing the various klipas that there is in this world, that which is forbidden, that which is per permissible, and that which is permissible dependent on our kavana, and our animal soul, our not godly soul, enclothes itself in all of the physical activities that we do in this world. And it's up to us what's going to happen, what, you know, this, in this involved, the involvements that we have, we're physical people. We're mundane people. We're going to be involved in the physical for every day of our life. That's the way Hashem created us. But it's up to us how we're going to be involved in it and therefore what it's going to do to our neshama. Is it going to pull it upward? Is it going to pull it downward? Of course, the animal side of us is not looking for Kedusha. So on, for the animal side of us is just looking to have a good time. It's up to us to direct it and to control it that our involvement in Gashmias should only lift us up and never drag us down to the ultimate extent, like, our, like our Rabbeinu HaKadosh, like Rabbi Huda Anasi, as we said earlier, who, who had everything, was involved in everything, and it was 100% only, only L'Shem Shammai. But this, this uh, ends these parakim that deal with the animal soul and its involvements in this world. Um, which came after the godless soul, and next week, God willing, we start Peter Tess, which is really where we, repeat, where we put one against the other, the godless soul and the animal soul, and their struggle, which we'll start in Mitzvah next week, in Peter Tess.